In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Epiphany Sunday is in some ways all about a star, but of course it's not actually about the star itself, but the thing that the star is pointing to, about Jesus. And this morning in our Epiphany readings, we have prophecy, fulfillment, and some commentary on that fulfillment, all centered around this newborn king. Isaiah, in his, in his letter or his writings, is writing to a defeated people whose cities built in the promised land had been destroyed, who were nothing like a shining light on a hill that they were intended to be and that they longed to be. The people of Israel had been disobedient for generations upon generations and ultimately sent into exile in Babylon. A few had returned to their ancestral cities, but most hadn't. So that's the context. Isaiah's writing these words to a completely discouraged people. But of course, God was not done with his people. Centuries before, God had promised Abraham to make him a family that would be numerous and blessed, and that through them, the world would be blessed. And God is in the business of keeping promises. So he speaks these words through Isaiah to these discouraged people. Arise, shine, for your light has come. Darkness shall cover the earth, but the Lord will arise upon you, and nations shall come to your light. When things seemed darkest, God promised that instead of being the scorn of the nations, Israel would once again have her sons and daughters come to her from around the world, and the wealth of nations would come to her as well, gold and frankincense. And so it's not hard to see why this is an Old Testament reading for the week in which we celebrate Epiphany the mention of gold and frankincense in both readings. We've got the Magi from the East coming to kneel at Jesus' feet with a light guiding the way, beautifully illustrated by our own star here in the nave. It seems like a one-for-one fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah. But if we look closely, there's some dissonance between these two melodies, between what Isaiah says will happen and what Matthew records happened, or at least an unexpected twist. It's true that frankincense and gold are brought into Israel and given to her. They are given to Israel's true king and representative, the true Israelite, the one who would perfectly live out a life faithful to that covenant that God made with Abraham, but would also take upon himself the punishment from the curse and the shame of disobedience to that covenant. Of course, we're talking about Jesus. And in the Christmas season over the last roughly 12 days, we've seen this king Jesus welcomed by shepherds, angels, Ox and lamb who apparently keep time with their hooves. Perhaps even a small drummer boy who chose a very poor instrument to welcome a baby. (laughs) But there are some notable absences. Who is absent from worshipping from kneeling at this king's manger? When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. King Herod was not really interested in a new king. He was already king, and he was very happy with his place. And apparently Jerusalem wasn't interested in a new king either. It isn't really explicit as to why all of Jerusalem is troubled. For Herod, we can imagine his own desires for power got in the way. For the rest of the city, they might have been fearful of a violent revolution that Rome would simply crush. Rome had done it before and would do it again. Maybe they assumed that they knew when a Messiah might come and what a Messiah might look like, and so they were taken off guard. Maybe the idea about being informed about such a new king from Gentile magi, from Gentile wise men, was simply inconceivable. And we'll see Jesus affirmed by the people of Israel to varying degrees throughout his ministry. But in Matthew's gospel, one in which is particularly interested in establishing Jesus' role as the fulfillment of Israel's hopes and expectations, 
We read that the acting leadership, and even Jerusalem itself, did not see Jesus' birth as good news. Matthew's very concerned with showing us that Jesus is this fulfillment of Israel's hopes, and here is Israel not responding. So this morning, we have a story of all the people who have the prophecies. Herod sent people to go look and find out that it was Bethlehem where the Messiah was to be born. They have all the background and the history to understand and see Jesus for who he is, and instead they're troubled by his arrival. And astrologers from what might have been Babylon, for all we know, recognizing Jesus for who he really is, kneeling and offering their gifts in worship, later hearing direct messages from God to lead their steps away from Herod. How could this be? One might say it's a mystery. Good thing for us. Paul decides to decode the mystery in the reading we have from Ephesians. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. Paul's unique calling, as he understood it, was to make this thing clear that had been misunderstood and hidden from generations of faithful Israelites before him, that God's intent was not to form families of God, but the single family of God, to whom are joined to Christ in baptism, people who are becoming inheritors of the promise of Abraham. This is one of Paul's arguments, it's through all of his letters, that God's intent was to form this single family, all those who are joined to Christ in baptism. To show that God's intent for creation was not an Israelite elect above subservient Gentiles, but a renewed humanity, redeemed by God's Son, who is all all of our King. I don't want to spend a lot of time trying to guess at the spiritual lives of the Magi after they took the long road home, but I don't think it's inconsequential that this story is in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew begins his telling of the good news by demonstrating Jesus' Israelite credentials in his genealogy. But he makes sure in a genealogical list of fathers, this person, father, this person, father, this person, to let us know that Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and that Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab, two non-Israelite women. He tells us of Eastern Magi worshiping and recognizing Jesus as king. He tells us of the faith of a centurion, a Roman guard. He tells of a Gentile demoniac who recognizes Jesus as the son of God, a Canaanite woman to whom Jesus ends up saying, how great is your faith. Matthew's gospel beats Paul to the punch of his own stated mission, showing us that Israel's Messiah just keeps on having these Gentile followers. The wrong people keep showing up and showing themselves to be faithful. And the right people, the people who should have known better, keep tripping over assumptions and missing the point entirely. We do not want to respond to our king like Herod or Jerusalem did, hearing an unexpected gospel and then rejecting it. The celebration of Epiphany is about a number of things, not least of which is the fact that the promised king of Israel, who would sit on the throne for all time, is in fact the king of the whole world, not the king of a particular people, but a particular people's king, whose kingdom is nothing less than the whole world. And it is also about those other people who came to understand this truth about Jesus. Again, I don't want to speculate on the status of those unnumbered magi. As different as their path to Christ may have been from my own, how can I consider their worship any less worthy, any less true, any less pleasing to God than my worship? Paul makes it clear throughout his letters that the body of Christ, the people who make up the daughters and sons of God, who are the outpouring of that promise made to Abraham, 
at the forefront of God's restorative work throughout the world are very different from one another. And the body of Christ isn't culture-less, some sort of thing that gets pulled out of context and exists in its own world, but culture-full, if you can allow me to abuse the English language this way. It's full of people who have their own unique cultures, who bring them to the table, and together they make up the diversity of the body of Christ. As one songwriter put it, the goal is unity, not uniformity. Let's remember that Paul's encouragement for the members of the body is to be aware of their need for the different parts. And we live in a world of echo chambers and theological silos. We must be ready to listen and learn from those who will worship Christ as king in a different way than we do. Because we're constantly at risk of creating God in our own image, assuming we fully understand who our king is, that there's nothing new to be revealed to us, and in the process miss him when he is right in front of us. I'll get very personal to myself. What this means for me is that as a married white male from North America, I have to seek out writers and theologians who are single, theologians of color, women and brothers and sisters from the rest of the world other than North America, so that I don't get confused into thinking God is just like me, that God is a slightly older white male living in heaven. I have to listen, I guess more than slightly older. <laughs> I have to listen to faithful Catholics and Baptists, and hopefully it goes beyond my reading list and into conversations and dialogue so that my own ego doesn't drag me into presumption that I have all the answers. For goodness sakes, our own congregation lived under the protection of bishops from several parts of the global south. If those churches were good enough to give us Episcopal legitimacy, then they certainly have the right to speak into our understanding of who God is. If we're okay with African bishops being in charge of our congregations, we better be okay with African theologians speaking into our understanding of the nature of God. That doesn't mean you lose your own voice in the dialogue. Again, nobody lives in this cultureless reality where we can transcend our own culture and say, now I'm a citizen of the world and I don't exist in my own life. We all come to Jesus from our own lives and our own societies and our own backgrounds. The problem isn't coming to God from where we are. The problem is assuming that where we are is the only place from which people come to God. Jerusalem and Herod assumed they knew how the Messiah was going to come. And so on Palm Sunday, weeks from now when we remember it, on Palm Sunday, they'll celebrate and cry Hosanna because they think they know how the king is showing up. And the king shows up entirely differently and with a totally different mission than what they wanted. And we can say we have all the wisdom of the New Testament now and we can look back and laugh at their folly. But how quickly will we fall into the same trap if we're unwilling to listen to people who worship Christ faithfully and honestly but from a different perspective than our own. So this morning, I pray that we'd be open to hearing the voices of those who love Christ in ways very different from us and help us to see our king for who he really is, not a king we've made up, not a king that looks just like us, but an actual king who rules over the entire world. May we be willing to kneel alongside them in praise of our king so that we never allow our desires for making the world into the image of our own creation, like we want it to be, to keep us from seeing Jesus as he is, and his body, the church, for what it really is, a beautiful, diverse, amazing collection of voices, many of whom are very different than us. Thanks be to God. Amen.